It's one of those uh, somber mornings in church this morning because as we, we bring our series through the Sermon on the Mount to a close, uh, we, we have to end it by examining what I believe to be uh, the most sobering verses in the entire Sermon on the Mount and probably one of the most solemn in all of the New Testament. So it's... Uh, not a fun one to preach this morning, but a necessary one. So just to recap briefly, um, last week I said that verse 13 onward contained Jesus' conclusion to his sermon. And his conclusion is centered around the theme of the two gates that he describes in verse 13 and verse 14. And these two gates represent the two paths that lay before every individual with no exceptions. Every person from Adam and Eve throughout God's creation will either take the narrow gate that leads to life and eternal joy or the gate that leads to death and eternal destruction. And the way to the narrow gate is only entered through faith in Jesus Christ. And after presenting the two gates, Jesus teaches that there's two dangers to those whom choose or believe they have chosen the narrow gate to life. And the first one that we looked at last week is the danger of false prophets. A false prophet is someone who claims to teach in Jesus' name, who may appear righteous, but in fact, as Jesus describes them, are a ravenous wolf disguised in sheep's clothing who hides amongst the flock to either intentionally or sometimes unintentionally destroy it. In this first danger, Jesus is directing followers of Christ to examine others. He's directing us to look at both the conduct and the instruction of those whose teaching we subject ourselves to. And we covered all of that last week when we were together. This morning, we're going to look at the second danger that those whom believe they have chosen the narrow gate must contend with. And this time, Jesus is directing all whom would profess him as Lord to examine not others, but to examine ourselves and the faith that we claim to profess. And then finally, this morning, we'll conclude our series through the Sermon on the Mount the same way that Jesus concludes his sermon by considering how to know whether our faith is genuine or not, how to know whether our foundation of faith is built on the rock and will remain or on sand and will crumble. And so let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we work through these verses, you would help us. Lord, I know that what we're speaking about this morning is difficult. And so, Lord, I pray that you would point us to your truth, that the words that come from me are from you, Lord, and that people would hear you in the midst of these verses. Father, that, you would under, that we would understand your heart for sinners, that we would understand that, that you love your creation. And Father, that we would understand that there is true faith and false faith, and we need to know the differences. So Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And so the second danger this morning, seven, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so I want to walk through each of the significant aspects of these verses. And I want to begin with the verses that I find to be the most heart-wrenching. And that's the words, Lord, Lord. Do you know that there's only eight instances in all of God's word where someone's name is repeated twice like this? In Genesis 22, verse 11, when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, the angel of the Lord came down and called him, Abraham, Abraham. Genesis 46.2, when God spoke to Jacob in visions at night, telling him to take his family to Egypt, he said, Jacob, Jacob. Exodus 3.4, when God calls to Moses out of the burning bush, he calls his name twice. 1 Samuel 3.10, when God calls Samuel while he's sleeping. 2 Samuel 18.33, when David is crying over his son Absalom's death. Luke 10, 41, when Jesus responds to a troubled and anxious Martha, he lovingly says, Martha, Martha. Luke twenty two thirty one, when Jesus foretells of Peter's betrayal. And probably the most significant, Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's eight times in God's word that we see this. And I can tell you that the circumstances surrounding the repetition of these names has little significance as to why the names are repeated. The significance behind the repetition has to do with the relationship between the one speaking and the one whose name is repeated. You see, to repeat a name in Hebrew tradition is an expression of intimacy. The one speaking believes the one whom they are speaking to is an intimate acquaintance. That they share a closeness between them that is substantial. There's a familiarity to one another. And so this means one's speaking in Jesus' illustration here saying, Lord, Lord, believe that they are intimately acquainted with him. That's the significance behind Lord, Lord. They believe they have a close relationship with Jesus. This is why I find these words to be so heartbreaking. Because as they say, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. As I was preparing this week for this, I was, I was genuinely trying to comprehend what that moment would be like. Like to think that I have a relationship with Jesus and for him to pull the rug out from under me with that kind of response. Like I I cannot comprehend the utter devastation of it. When I consider the eternal implications of Jesus' response to someone who just moments before thought they knew him and he knew them, it's unfathomable to me. And then... To consider not just the intimate repetition of his name, but but the actual name itself that these people used. They called him Lord. That name indicates how they viewed him. 
It's the work, it's the Greek word kurios, which means a person that has absolute ownership rights. It's not as though these people were saying, Jesus, Jesus, or Rabbi, Rabbi, the way that Judas was. They recognized who he really is. And they say, Lord, Lord, you have absolute ownership over me. That's what they're saying. So these are not people who conclude that Jesus is a good teacher, like so many people in our world. These are not people who conclude he's simply someone who had important moral and ethical things to say. These are people who confess faith in him, who believe that when the wheat and the chaff are separated, they're going to be a part of the wheat. And Jesus tells them, I never knew you. I I don't think there would be anything more tragic than that than to find yourself in this group of people that Jesus says this to. I don't think there would be anything more awful. Greg Morris, he he puts it this way. He says, is any lostness worse than remaining lost while believing you're found? Of all those who finally travel the broad way to destruction, are any so wretched as those who sang Christian songs, prayed Christian prayers, and sat under countless Christian sermons along the way? The man sipping sand in the desert because he thinks he holds a cup of water is the most tragic and pitiable of sightings. To plunge thoughtlessly into the next life is one horror, but to play the saint and still be deceived is another. And so when I read these words from Jesus, it brings up questions in me. It brings up, how can this happen? How can this be? How can someone be so deceived? What do we need to take from this? What do do I, what do we need to know to make sure that this isn't us? And that's what I want to try and focus on for the next few minutes. You know, I think one of the things that's in here that's very clear is there's a clear warning that Jesus is giving us in these verses. And I think he's warning us against the the danger of our own tendency toward self-deception. Jeremiah decrees, along with so many other scriptures, that the heart is more deceitful than all else in Jeremiah 17, 9. And the reason for this goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. It is the result of sin. And there's there's two factors that lead to how easily we are deceived. First is that sin makes us entirely self-centered. And in our twisted love of self, it's very easy for us to be deceived about ourselves. Right? Let, let's be honest. We, we make more excuses and justifications for ourselves and our actions than we ever would for anyone else. Right? We, we think we're right more than anyone else. We often think we're more capable than we actually are. When, when someone confronts us with a legitimate concern, we often deflect or try to justify and sometimes think they're unreasonable. How often have you made a claim about yourself and someone who knows you really well responds to you, you're not like that at all. My wife has lovingly done that for me. And it surprises you. What? I'm not. I could go on, but we we are easily deceived by ourselves because of our sinful hearts. 
And the second factor that leads to deception is the rarity of wisdom in our day and age. Paul David Tripp, he says, there's loads of knowledge to be found, but wisdom is a rare commodity. Why? Because wisdom is one of sin's first casualties. It's hard to admit, but true nonetheless. Sin reduces all of us to fools. And the fact is that no one is more victimized by your foolishness than you are. Our hearts have an unfortunate ability of being deceived as a result of sin. The warning of deception is present in both dangers that Jesus brings forward, in the danger of false prophets and in the danger of our own faith. Right, Jeremiah 6.14, we looked at last week. He says, they have healed the wound of my people, talking about false prophets. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Right? The false prophets were giving the people a pleasant message of God's peace toward them when really God's wrath was upon them. And the same thing can happen on a personal level because of our ability to deceive ourselves. Our own hearts can cry, peace, peace. When there is no peace, we can succumb to a false peace, believing that we are in the faith when in fact we are not. And the great danger of not knowing that you are lost is that you're not looking to be found. An individual who comes to the realization that they are lost, they they search for help, they search for rescue. But an individual who believes that they're already found will remain lost all the while not knowing it. And they only come to the realization of their condition when it's too late. Jesus says at the beginning of verse 22, on that day, which is referring to the coming day of judgment, he says on that day, those who are deceived will face a terrible realization and it will be too late to do anything about it as they hear Jesus' words, I never knew you, depart from me. Like, this is awful. This isn't fun to preach. And so what warnings, what learnings can we get from this terrible danger that we may know and we may have true peace? Because my intention this morning, and I want to be very clear about this, my intention is not to cause an examination of faith where there is absolutely no need for it. It is not to call into question faith where there's absolutely no need for it. But I pray that where there is a need, that God would graciously reveal that so that we may be forewarned if we find the faith that we think we have to be lacking and be truly saved. Because the good thing is that hope remains so long as Jesus has not returned yet. That day has not come. And so if we are amongst that group that finds ourselves, wait a second, maybe I'm not so sure, there's time. And in God's grace, I hope that he would reveal that. And so I want to give you two deceptions that I think we can fall into that are very clear from these verses that we need to take as warnings and need to take it as examinations of our faith. And the first is that we must beware of the danger of intellectualism. People professing faith in Christ, in our culture especially, will face the idol of intellectualism. 
which can cause us to wrongfully conclude that right thinking about Jesus means we have faith in Jesus. The people, for the people in Jesus' illustration, they proclaim him correctly as Lord. But he warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These people addressed Jesus correctly. They knew what was right. But though they came to the correct conclusions about who he is, they evidently did not have saving faith or Jesus would not have said, I never knew you. And so right thinking and correct intellectual conclusions does not necessarily denote saving faith. We see a similar thing happen in John chapter 2. After Jesus cleanses the temple, God's word says many believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust the, himself to them because he knew all people. So we see a similar thing. The people believed in Jesus' name. They believed something correctly about him, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew that their faith wasn't real. And so we can be deceived thinking that intellect and right thinking mean we have faith. And along the same line, we can also wrongly conclude the amount of knowledge that we have about God and the things of God is an indicator of our faith. And I will say this before I go too far, because if you know me, if you've been around Move Church for any amount of time, you know that I hold knowledge and I hold intellect to a high regard. And so I am not discounting the importance of those things. Correct conclusions about Jesus Christ are vital to the faith. And gaining knowledge about the Lord is an important fruit and pursuit of the faith. But there is a danger of actually placing our so-called faith in our intellectual understanding and beliefs about Jesus rather than placing our faith in Jesus himself. An illustration that this danger Exist is the fact that there are theologians who know more about God than any of us and any average Christian, and yet they will readily profess that they don't believe in a literal God. Knowledge does not mean saving faith. Knowledge and right thinking and trusting in intellect doesn't mean that you're trusting in Christ. We are a resource heavy culture. We have organizations who pump out new and excellent Christian resources consistently. And this is one of those things that is both a blessing and a curse, right? It's, it's a blessing because such resources are deeply helpful. But it can become a curse very quickly because we can become heavily dependent on them. Where resources become a filler for intimate relationship with God. And we're... we're what we're doing is we're actually filling up on knowledge that comes from another person's relationship with God and neglecting our own relationship with God. And what the Lord wants is to teach us firsthand. He wants a firsthand relationship with us. This is something that every one of us in this place, I would say any person in Western culture needs to be aware of and confront ourselves with the question of what does our faith consist of? Is, is it exceedingly an intellectual pursuit or is it largely a relational pursuit with helpful resources that we use from time to time to strengthen our relationship with the Lord? It's one of those things that it's actually very easy to discern whether you are trusting in Jesus or intellect, but, but one can remain deceived out of a self-protection 
and an unwillingness to admit their faith may not be what they thought it was. It can be a hard realization that that you've fallen into intellectualism and you're, you're trusting in knowledge and you're trusting in wisdom rather than Christ himself. To escape intellectualism and to run to Christ, it often requires giving up self-sufficiency. It often requires giving up control in order to truly have God. You see, if our, if our faith is based largely on resources. It's just a form of control. It's a form of self-sufficiency because we're able to control how we interact with God and what God is able to say to us. What aspects of our life are we willing to allow him to go to? What's off limits? What's not? Because we're determining our relationship based on the resources that we're reading or listening to or whatever it might be. So God's only able to go to those areas. And this isn't a relationship with God. This is not what faith is. And at some point, if this is our walk, we have to ask, do I truly know Jesus or do I just know about Jesus? And more importantly than that, does he know me? Trusting in intellectualism is easily discernible based on three criteria. Number one, what does your prayer life look like? Number two, what what does your Bible reading look like? And number three, what does your obedience look like? If these three things are secondary to reading books, and listening to podcasts, and watching sermons, and depending heavily on secondary resources as our main activities in faith, it needs to be a red flag. Either we've gotten off track in a season, and we need to realign ourselves, or we're trusting in intellect over Christ. Either way, to get back to him, or to come to him is through repentance. It's through a recognition and a repentance. The second thing that we must be aware of is we must be aware of the dangers of works and experience. I would say especially those of the supernatural variety. Much like intellectualism, works and experience and supernatural occurrences are appropriate fruit of our faith. But we can wrongly make them an idol. And we can place our faith in our works and our encounters with God. We see this danger in the defense that the people actually make to Jesus. This was their very defense in in verse 22. They say, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Right, so they're defending their faith based on their works. But the only appropriate way of defending our faith is, Lord, did I not trust in Jesus Christ, knowing that there is no other name by which I can be saved? And out of that flows works and obedience. I think it's important to note that that each of the claims that are made is based on supernatural things. Prophesying, casting out demons, mighty works. 
These are fruits that, that can and I would say should occur in Christian walk. But what is incorrectly happening here is signs and wonders have become the central indicator of faith. Not simply a fruit of faith. The central indicator of faith is belief in Jesus Christ and trust in his word through obedience to it. And this is exactly what Jesus says is lacking in the lives of those whom he will declare, I never knew you. Our our Lord is gracious and he tells us right in verse 21, the one who has saving faith and will enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So this, this may lead to a second question for someone. Well, what is the will of God? And that question can be answered as we turn to the last three verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 24 to 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus is connecting his thoughts from verse 21 to 23 with the verses that we just read. He connects them with the words everyone then to explain what follows is the will of our Father in heaven. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Our Father's will is that we be doers of the word. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so for, for us to hear the words of Jesus and do them, for us to read the written word and do it, this is the will of our Father in heaven. And so you may ask, isn't this the same as putting faith in works if it's about being doers of the word? And no, it's not, because there's a difference between a justified follower of Christ whose faith is confirmed by works, which is what Jesus desires of us and James speaks of in James 1.22, and an individual whose faith is based on justification by works. In true faith, justification comes first and works are fruit. In false faith, works are our justification. Which is why these people came to Christ and said, God, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. That's a sign that your faith is based on justification by works. That's not true faith. All who are in faith in Jesus Christ will come to him on that judgment day and go, Lord, you did this. You saved me. Anything, any fruit in my life is because of your spirit within me. I have nothing to offer other than what you have given. That's true faith. I, um, I, could, I could preach a few years of sermons on what the will of God entails, but I won't do that. Um, But to keep it simply, what does the word of God entail? Well, let's keep it in the context of just the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus just finished teaching a crowd of his disciples and he concludes, everyone then that does the will of my father who does my words is wise. That's the will of my father. So what, what should come to mind? 
for those who are before him, what would they have immediately in their minds? Well, we have to recognize, first of all, that we're a sinner, right? that we are poor in spirit, and then mourn over our wickedness and hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when an individual genuinely does this, it means the Spirit of God is working in them, and Jesus says they will be satisfied. Right? You can render that saved. Right? This is the Beatitudes. This is what he says right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Then what? Well, we live mercifully towards others because of the mercy that we received through Christ. We live upright and pure lives. We gladly accept persecution and reviling from others. We live as salt and light, desiring to preserve others through this gospel and banish darkness. We live self-controlled, never judging others or ourselves as superior. We walk in integrity. We walk in integrity sexually and covenantally and in the words that we say. We walk humbly, not retaliating and and loving those who hate us. We give generously, not worrying about what we may get back, honoring others as greater than ourselves. We pray and we seek the Lord. We fast. We depend on him. We hold loosely the things of this world. We trust in God, not our circumstances. We kill pride, not judging others and treating them as they want to be treated and as we would want to be treated. And in all of these things and more, we produce good fruit. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus said. This is what's doing, what doing the will of the Father is. This is what's building our house on a rock, not the sand. And how do we know, as we close up, how do we know whether we are standing in true faith on Jesus Christ in the house that has been built on him who is the rock, how do we know that we have true faith? Jesus tells us, when the rain comes and the floods come and the wind blows and they beat against your house, does it fall? Or does it remain standing? If our faith is founded and rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, not intellect, not works and experience, but the only Son of God, then whatever comes, we will persevere and faith will remain. That house will stay standing. Why? Because it's God who saves us. It's God who holds us fast and it's God who keeps that house standing. Philippians 1.6 and I am sure of this. I love that. I love that Paul says that. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As the song goes by Matt Redman, he says, You never let go. Through the calm and through the storm, in every high and every low, Lord, you never let go of me. And that is saving faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I understand the weightiness of this message and I understand that it causes us to to pause and reflect and, and, and rightly it should, Lord. We should reflect on our faith. 
We should reflect on the, the confession that we have made, the fruit of our lives. And Lord, for some, it's just this beautiful confirmation. And I would say most, it's a beautiful confirmation of what you have done and what you continue to do, that you've saved us and you hold us fast and we see you doing all of these things in our life. Father, I pray for those who maybe it causes pause. And Lord, I thank you first of all for your mercy that that you wouldn't leave us blinded, that we wouldn't get to that day and you say, I didn't know you, that you would lovingly give us a warning, be aware of the faith that we say we have. And so Father, for those, I pray that they would willing examine. Are they trusting in intellectualism? Are they trusting in works or are they trusting in you? Father, for those who maybe have gotten into a season, some seasons are so crazy. I know my house is insane right now. And, and praying and reading the Bible and, and, and all of those things don't come easily. And so we know, Lord, sometimes in seasons we can just get kind of sidetracked. And for those, Lord, may this be a, a moment of recognition that, you know what, maybe I'm focusing too heavily on resources and, and my relationship is lacking. And God, I pray that they would see that and repent and graciously turn back. And Lord, I thank you that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, our house is built on the rock. And no matter what comes, no matter storms, no matter rain, no matter wind, it will not fall because you are holding us fast. And you who began a good work will bring it to completion on that day. And you will say, I know you. And I love you. And you are mine. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.